Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day today. We appreciate it and hope you're having a good one. Here's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to get an update on CFAP, how much money has gone out, and possible plans for CFAP 2. We'll talk about that with the State Executive Director for FSA in Washington. That'll be coming up on today's program. We're going to get an update on the rural health care system as COVID-19 continues. We'll get an update on the situation throughout rural America with Brock Slaybaugh, Senior Vice President for the National Rural Health Association. And we're going to talk with Ethan Lane with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association as NCBA has entered into uh, an agreement with um, some other groups for some conservation efforts and we're going to get the latest on that in a bit but we're going to start things off today learning about a new campaign by the national pork board called real pork we're joined now by angie krieger vice president domestic marketing for the national pork board angie thanks for joining us once again tell us about real pork thanks mike and thanks for the opportunity we are really excited to launch Real Pork, which is our new master brand here at the National Pork Board. And through Real Pork, we want to provide consumers who are questioning what they can trust in this uh, incredibly cluttered food environment uh, with the answer uh, that they're seeking. Uh, We've got a really diverse set of consumers that uh, want recognizable products and they want something that we can rely on. And Real Pork is going to celebrate the flavor of our products but also encompass the values and beliefs of our industry from farm to fork in a way that we've never done before. One of the things that has happened during COVID-19, people have obviously stayed home more, and that means they are cooking at home more. And many of them are discovering, maybe for the first time, uh, pork products and how nutritious and delicious they are and how convenient they are and finding new ways to use pork. Yeah, you're right. During the pandemic, uh, pork has seen a dramatic increase in retail sales, which is fantastic for us. Uh, you know, food service clearly is, is still down, but retail is up and people are cooking more at home. And we've got great data sets that show us where those people are. We want to make sure that we're targeting them with all the positive messages about our about pork, um, about our producers, and uh, the wonderful industry that we have that creates this delicious food so that they go back out and they buy pork again and again. Uh, Because at the end of the day, if we can get into that routine, the weekly routine that a lot of families have, uh, it will be a win for our producers. I was with some friends recently. This kind of shows how maybe I take some things for granted. Uh, But they were talking about they had just recently tried for the first time ground pork and they were talking about how much they enjoyed it how delicious it was and that it was now a big part of you know of their diet and and the menu at their house that they were going to have it more and more and i just realized you know some of us are (laughs) you know we've uh, we've enjoyed uh, ground pork for some time but others are just now discovering it that's been a really hot food trend hasn't it ground pork Oh, ground pork has, is having a moment, <laughs> we could say. 
Um, yeah, ground pork sales have surged uh, since March 1st. And the, the really great data that we're seeing about ground pork is that almost 50% of people who are buying ground pork weren't buying it in the prior year. And they're coming back and buying it again. So uh, we are definitely very excited about ground pork. And the thing that is so amazing about ground pork is you can season it in any way, which really plays in well to the, the campaign that we're launching, Real Pork. With um, We're calling it Pork as a Passport. We're really trying to show people how they can enjoy all of the flavors of the world in their own kitchen. And an ingredient like ground pork is a really important part of that. All right. Now tell us where we can go to find out more about what's going on with Real Pork. Yep. So uh, the landing page on our website is uh, pork.org forward slash real pork. That's where people will find uh, inspiration for global flavors. And so that's really where we're going to drive all of our consumers when we're thinking about how we want to inspire them to use pork differently. But our social channels uh, on Facebook and Instagram at National Pork Board, we will have constant content that we'll be sharing out um, as far as other activities that we're doing. For example, we sponsor the World Food Championships Final Table. Um, that was filmed a couple weeks ago. Our own chef, Jim Murray, who's an employee at the National Pork Board, was one of the judges. And the 10 finalists were all challenged in the first round of that competition to cook a pork dish. So we're really excited. The three finalists were all big pork enthusiasts. We'll be sharing more information about those dishes as we go along as well. And you're going to also highlight uh, uh, the production of pork, right? Uh, how, how producers care for their animals and, and provide that uh, delicious product, that pork product for us. Yes, we are. Consumers want to know more about where their food comes from and what happens on farms. And so We've had an, an amazing program in the pork industry for over a decade now, our We Care program, which is the basis of our ethical principles. There are six ethical principles, and they've been embraced and celebrated by our producers for many years. But we've never really brought those principles to life for consumers. And Real Pork is going to provide a platform for us to celebrate our industry in that way and show consumers how authentic and genuine our entire industry is. So we're, we're going to grab them with the food, but we're going to keep them with building that trust through our ethical principles. And also work with a family psychologist, uh, talk about the importance of family meals. Yeah, family meals are a huge trend. Um, I know, Mike, I just sent my daughters off to school this morning uh, for the first time in almost six months, right? Um, we've been home uh, like many families, and the idea of the family meal has, has been a welcome, uh, you know, a side effect of our, of our COVID quarantines. And what we're seeing in research is that people don't want to lose that connection with their family over food. But we know that life is going to start to get busier and pick up, even if it happens in fits and starts. So Lori Gottlieb, who's a well-recognized family psychologist, is going to work with us um, to help us share with families how, how pork can be a way that they unite uh, their families, whether it's cooking together or bringing a family together around holidays, but really making every day a celebration. All right, so tell us again that website where we can go to keep uh, uh, a close watch on the activities and keep up to date on real pork. Yep, it's pork.org forward slash real pork. 
and also our Facebook and Instagram social channels at National Pork Board. All right, lots of good information there, a lot to learn, a lot to uh, uh, take in on pork, and we appreciate you being with us, Angie. Angie Krieger, Vice President Domestic Marketing for the National Pork Board. Thanks, Angie. Thanks, Mike. Check it out, Real Pork. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, Back to Mike Adams. Well, let's get a CFAP, Coronavirus Food Assistance Program update. Joining us today is the Executive Director for the State of Washington's FSA. We're talking now with John Weiss. John, thanks for joining us here on Adams on Agriculture. Good to be with you, Mike, and thanks for having us. All right. Uh, the last number I saw, uh, what just around $9 billion has been sent out. Is that correct? That is correct. So um, the coronavirus food assistance program uh, came out in uh, you know early this year uh, in response to the COVID crisis, and FSA uh, through USDA's actions jumped in to uh, assist the farmers and ranchers uh, carry out this process, and uh, we have dispersed just over 9.2 billion dollars in payments. And 557,592 approved applications. And it's been just outstanding, the response that we've had to this program. And I know it's helping a lot of farmers that need it. The pace of the payments seems to have picked up. Tell us what you're doing to kind of assist and, and help this process move along. You bet. So the average turnaround time for an application for CFAP as of today for the nation is 72 days from the time they file for the application to get approved. And one of the ways that we've been able to achieve this is when uh, all, all the country uh, went through the shutdowns with uh, the coronavirus and had to adjust, and FSA had to do the same. Our offices had to uh, close to the public and only help remotely. And so USDA saw a challenge, and then the folks uh, within the agency said, we need to do something more. And so they created a call center, which is the first call center uh, in, in FSA, that allowed producers to call 877-508-8364 and speak directly with a USDA employee who's ready and willing to offer assistance in the CFAP program to facilitate and be an extension of the FSA office uh, and be able to help nationally. It was a good first step for our producers uh, because they were enabled to engage actual FSA employees at, at the call center and at the county office. So we were able to increase the amount of customers that we could help while we were in this process of uh, providing assistance to the producers. And it's just been an outstanding event. Uh, all, all these folks were volunteers, uh, county offices from across the country, uh, they stepped up and said, I'll volunteer to do extra effort. I'll volunteer to be on the call center. I'll help. And so we had over 140 people 
uh, jump into this call center. And since its inception, we've taken 16,300 calls, with the most being 1,535 in a single day. So it's just been an outstanding outreach effort. It's been outstanding to help our farmers and ranchers across this great nation. And we believe that uh, our, our staff is the best at what they do, and it's starting to show. We're talking with Washington State FSA Executive Director John Weiss. John, we'd heard stories of some producers that were unfamiliar with uh, CFAP, and, and we're just learning about it or just hearing about it. Are, can you uh, tell us if uh, some of these people that are calling in uh, are just now finding out about the program? That is correct. Um, you do a large amount of outreach for every program that comes from FSA, and with any new program, there's a lot of outreach. But coronavirus did not uh, separate itself from anyone in agriculture, and there were a lot of people who have never used FSA before. Um, they were not part of uh, FSA's normal operations where they're not in the program commodities. And so we had to do a large volume of outreach, and the call center was part of that outreach. And so we have new producers coming into the office that have never been here before, and they've had to learn. You know, Some of them didn't even know what FSA stood for uh, when they called. Some of them didn't know what an AGI form was. So there's been lots of education along the way through the call center, and that's why this call center has been the great first step because we've been able from the call center to educate our new customers and our existing customers on a variety of our programs, uh, especially for the CFAP, get them through the first steps of their application and then they take it to their local service center where they continue to receive the excellent service FSA provides. And uh, we now have a new set of customers and a new customer base that is now looking at what other programs the USDA may offer uh, through FSA. So it's been an exceptional item to have for USDA as a whole. You're up to what now, 89 commodities covered under CFAP? Yeah, that is that is correct. Um, and uh, we did, you know, we had the initial commodities that were listed, and then we went through what was called a NOFA, and the NOFA procedures to find out, you know, were there other commodities that were able to qualify for the program, and which we did, uh, and the commodities were added. That procedure is now over, but those 89 commodities are now um, all being handled through the FSA and payments being sent out. You know, we USDA originally announced $16 billion in direct supports to producers by COVID in late May. And to date, you know, less than half of that money is dispersed. So USDA is acting very quickly to make sure that everyone gets paid through these programs. And the conservation assumptions as well, you know, have ownership interest in, in, in our commodities and so by doing the payments to them at first at 80%, um, we held back money, too, to ensure that as those additional commodities were added, we had funds available to pay. Uh, now that that procedure is over, we have all of the available funds to pay each producer who applies for CFAP. And it's very important to know that September 11th, we're coming up on that day pretty quick, um, that that's the ending date to sign up for this program. 
But anyone who signs up for the program now will receive 100% of their payment as that initial constraint has been removed. I know there's still some commodities that feel they should be in there and want to be in there, so we'll, we'll watch that because Secretary Purdue is also talking about possibly a CFAP 2.0 after Labor Day. Can you tell us anything about that? Um, under CFAP 2, um, they're actively considering losses that producers have felt due to COVID-19. And, you know, the congressional leaders are going to be working on that. The USDA is working on that. And as more details are gathered and information gathered, uh, USDA and FSA will be able to comment on that further. But right now, we're just trying to actively, you know, gather information and consider the losses and the impacts due to COVID. And uh, we'll, we'll take additional action if necessary uh, in the future. How's the response been in your state of Washington? So Washington State, it's been phenomenal. Um, I have, a, just like the rest of the country, I'm, I have an amazing staff uh, within FSA, and they are caring about their farmers. We've approved just over 2,200 applications and paid out over $98 million uh, in CFAP payments, dairy being the largest uh, at $47 million, specialty crops, which were one of the commodities that were added through the NOFA procedure, which shows you know, that USDA listens and USDA cares, um, is at $24.8 million and livestock at 23 and non-specialty at 2.1. So, and our, our turnaround times in Washington State um, average 2.4 days for the specialty crops and uh, 4.2 days uh, for all commodities combined. So we have a pretty quick turnaround, and that's because we have an amazing staff. John, tell us again, for those with questions about CFAP, uh, what's that number they can call? You bet. So the CFAP uh, call center number, and the, the call center is English and Spanish, just in case people wonder. There is a Spanish option. But that number is 877-508-8364. Again, it's 877-508-8364. Six four, and you can speak directly with the USDA employee in English or Spanish. All right, John. Thank you very much for the update. We appreciate it. You're welcome, sir, and I hope you have a wonderful day. All right. Take care. Thank you. That's John Weiss. He is the Washington State FSA Executive Director with an update on CFAP. Again, around $9.2 billion has gone out, 89 commodities eligible, and uh, that... Uh, call center number if you have any questions about CFAP 877-508-8364. Up next we'll talk with the National Rural Health Association and get an update on how the National Rural Health System is dealing with COVID-19. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. And welcome back, and we welcome back Brock Slaybaugh, Senior Vice President for the National Rural Health Association. Brock, we've not talked in a while. Wanted to get an update on how our national rural health care system 
is dealing with COVID-19. What can you tell us? Well, thank you, Mike, for the invitation, and uh, it's great to be on your show today. Um, yeah, I think that um, most rural communities around the United States are dealing with different uh, phases of the COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, we have uh, hot spots uh, in central Mississippi and other parts along the Gulf Coast. Um, we see it uh, waning in places like Texas and Oklahoma, thankfully. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it depends on where you are in the United States, um, and rural providers are doing a great job of keeping up with uh, the demand that they're seeing and trying to uh, treat patients the best they can. Have there been any areas where the system's been overwhelmed, unable to handle the, uh, the volume of, of patients uh, needing help? Uh, we're not finding any directly that way. I think that uh, fortunately, because of some of the efforts at uh, bending the curve, as it's called, uh, we're keeping the uh, resources in the intensive care units and others available um, so that uh, there could be ready transfer. I know in Mississippi, they've ex- they're experiencing some uh, struggles, uh, but in the rest of the uh, country, I think that uh, things are fairly uh, satisfactory at the moment. Early on, there was the the great need for the ventilators and masks and other protective equipment. Are there shortages of equipment anywhere in the system? We're seeing um, a fairly saturated market for personal protective equipment. Um, Of course, testing still remains an issue that's uh, getting tests back uh, uh, within a reasonable period of time so that uh, active uh, treatment can begin if a patient is uh, seen to be positive. Uh, so um, uh, so that's running along fairly well, although, uh, like I said, we're seeing pockets of where this is occurring uh, more than the others. I, I think with testing, too, we're seeing with the return of, uh, uh, of children and uh, college-age uh, uh, students to their schools, I think that we're seeing some... Uh, outbreaks and clusters and uh, some concerns about testing um, in terms of those environments. New tests are being developed all the time, yet there are still some issues. We hear about false positives and things like that. What's been the, uh, what what have you seen across the system in dealing with this, with testing and where we're at? Well, that's a great question, Mike. I, I think that we're seeing an evolution in testing, um, uh, testing technology. Uh, they're just now introducing and starting to use more widely the saliva test, um, which is uh, fairly accurate and um, as tests go and uh, is uh, certainly a lot less um, uh, un- uncomfortable for the patient. And then the results come within a day or two um, after um, they're sent off. So, so, that, uh, so that's some promising technology, and I've seen even that there's some uh, – testing sources uh, as of this morning that are looking at charging way less than what's being charged now uh, for an average uh, COVID test. We're talking with Brock Slayball with the National Rural Health Association. Brock, early on we saw a lot of hospitals uh, have to lay off uh, workers and suspend uh, you know, some elective surgeries and procedures. We know that's starting to come back now, but where does it stand overall? Well, uh, Mike, I think that what we're seeing is that we're still uh, uh, hospitals uh, through many efforts of the federal government. We had the provider relief funds through the CARES Act passed in late April. 
Uh, we had uh, the SBA, the Small Business Administration's uh, Paycheck Protection Program, helped a lot of rural hospitals. Uh, those were very stabilizing and welcome uh, sources of uh, uh, support. But it's like a patient, uh, it's like the uh, jolt of uh, electric uh, through a defibrillator to a patient. And, uh, to a patient. Uh, it woke up the hospitals. It got them. It's keeping them alive. But uh, the patient is still in the, um, in the intensive care unit. So we're worried going into the fall and winter um, where we're expecting um, a resurgence of COVID uh, uh, spread. And then possibly at the same time, of course, with uh, influenza uh, starting to um, uh, rear its ugly head uh, like it normally does in the fall and winter. So we could be experiencing in those periods what we're calling a twindemic. And um, that could certainly threaten many rural hospitals with, uh, again, canceling elective and and non-emergent procedures uh, because of the widespread because of the widespread outbreaks of those two uh, dreadful diseases. We were seeing a number of rural hospitals closing before COVID-19. Are we seeing more closed during COVID-19? We've had had four closed since the beginning of the pandemic, and there's two now, uh, two more slated to close in October in uh, Georgia. And so, uh, we're seeing uh, that starting to tick back up, and as some of these funds that I mentioned to you a second ago begin to um, evaporate uh, through just the course of time and in, in, in operations, uh, we're going to be seeing some more hospital closures. I'm afraid about uh, 453 are, are around the United States are in desperate shape at this point, and uh, they may not be able to last through another round of um, of, of COVID and influenza which certainly would strain the ability of the rural health care system to meet the needs, especially uh, of people going into the fall and the situation you were you were talking about could develop. Yes, sir. Yes, Mike. That's um, we're, we're really concerned. I mean, when you look at rural hospitals, they, they provide more than just uh, access to acute care and to emergency services. Many of our rural hospitals are the employers for all of the physicians, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants that provide primary care. And so when the hospital closes and leaves, then it uh, leaves the community uh, without employers for their primary care workforce. And uh, that is, of course, uh, really uh, bad news, uh, especially during a time of need like we're in now. What is the biggest need for most of these rural hospitals as you look to the federal government for more assistance? Well, we're certainly looking in this fourth round of COVID relief legislation that uh, the Senate will be taking up as they come back from their August recess. Uh, We'll be working with them, of course, to try and get provisions that will uh, be able to tide over these uh, facilities uh, into this uh, fall and winter period. Uh, we also are pleased that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services has released uh, programming for um, new models of healthcare delivery in rural areas. And so we'll be working with uh, uh, CMS and with other uh, government agencies in the implementation of uh, some of those innovation models uh, that came out. So we're real happy about that as well. So you're looking at this fall 
as another critical time. We've seen a lot of peaks and, and valleys, uh, numbers up and down, but uh, we've heard a lot of people talk about concerns of a second wave or uh, COVID added on to the normal flu season, a lot of those concerns. How, how does the system gear up for that? Well, several things. One, I would encourage all of your listeners to make sure that they get their flu shot. Um, that's uh, It's time. The, uh, the vaccine is available now, so you can make an appointment with your provider, uh, go to a drugstore, and uh, get those shots uh, made. I think that would be really uh, wise advice for this time. And then, of course, uh, later this year, probably at the turn of the new year, uh, we should be having a COVID vaccine, uh, hopefully released with any luck, and uh, that would be another vaccine to receive. And then uh, that would certainly help mitigate uh, the spread of these two diseases as we look ahead towards the fall and winter uh, potential uh, spread of those two diseases. As we look to the potential of uh, of having a vaccine for COVID, the rural health care system will obviously be a big part of that, right, getting that out and available to people. Yes, Mike, that's a, a great point. Um, NRHA, uh, my association, uh, we have uh, submitted a letter to Secretary Azar at Health and Human Services and have uh, basically requested uh, as far as priority that rural communities be placed on on um, on a list so that they get their fair share of uh, vaccines uh, at the same time that the rest of the country does. Our rural populations are typically older and sicker, and so the impact of COVID uh, certainly is a lot uh, fiercer uh, in the rural uh, space. And so we think that um, uh, there should be at least a fair share of those vaccines going out to rural communities. So those discussions are underway already, even before the, the vaccine is uh, fully developed. Yes, sir. The uh, Health and Human Services uh, of the federal government has uh, initiated a commission that's actually studying and will be making recommendations to Secretary Azar on how the vaccine will be distributed later this year. All right, Brock, thank you for the update as we uh, continue to watch uh, how the rural health care system is handling and able to handle uh, COVID-19. Thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. It's great to be on. All right. That is Brock Slaybaugh. He is Senior Vice President for the National Rural Health Association with an update on COVID-19 throughout rural America and how the rural health care system is dealing with it. And again, the challenges uh, already having lost several rural hospitals and sounds like could lose some more uh, during this uh, pandemic. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. And welcome back. The National Cattlemen's Beef Association and the Public Lands Council recently signed a memorandum of understanding with Ducks Unlimited and Safari Club International. Here to talk about it is the Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, Ethan Lane. Ethan, thanks for joining us. Tell us about uh, the significance of this partnership. 
Ethan, are you there? Well, we thought we had him. Maybe we lost him. Okay, so we'll try to get Ethan back and uh, talk about the significance of this partnership as these groups are trying to outline their shared commitment to conservation of natural resources through sustainable multiple use. So sometimes you don't think about ag groups working uh, that closely with Safari Club, perhaps, uh, or some of those. But uh, here's uh, uh, what's really kind of a historic conservation partnership, if you will, highlighting the common ground of these groups. And we will find out more about uh, what will hopefully come from this uh, as we move forward. All right. I don't know. Is Ethan going to be with us or not? Doesn't sound like it. Okay. We'll try to get Ethan maybe tomorrow and we can talk about that. Let me uh, switch to this. My thoughts on, on some things going on as we watch this uh, political campaign um, really heat up. Have you ever have you ever watched a movie and then talked with someone else who has also seen that same movie and as you're talking back and forth, you you kind of wonder yourself, did we actually see the same movie? Because what they saw and the impressions they took away seem to be completely different than your own, even though you saw the same movie. Well, we're kind of going through that right now as each political party paints their picture of America at their national conventions. Last week, it was the Democrats. This week, the Republicans. Obviously, they have vastly different views on where we are and where we need to go. Now, while this campaign heats up, the battle for rural American votes is heating up as well. What some are describing as, of course, flyover country, uh, we know that middle America, rural America, played a big part in Donald Trump's election four years ago. And now the president is trying to keep that support while Joe Biden hopes to, if not take away that support, at least make a dent in the president's base. Now, here's what I think is the huge question that's yet to be answered. We'll find out come November. Will rural voters give President Trump credit for his assistance during these very tough times, or will they blame him for causing a lot of it? That's the question we'll soon answer. Well, not the only issue. Biofuels have become a key part of that debate. Now, along with helping lessen our dependence on foreign oil, the U.S. biofuels industry provides jobs and economic activity for rural economies and provides markets for grain farmers and feed for livestock producers. The footprint for biofuels is much larger than what many people realize. Now, both candidates say they are supporters of biofuels, but both also have mixed track records. The Trump administration, for example, did allow year-round E15 sales. That was significant. But it has also allowed EPA to grant numerous waivers to the renewable fuel standard for oil refineries, letting them opt out. That has certainly hurt ethanol and biodiesel demand. Now, the Biden campaign has criticized the Trump administration for those waivers and for delaying the announcement of renewable volume obligations, RVOs, for next year. In other words, setting the levels that the uh, 
of use for biofuels for the coming year under the RFS. But it should be pointed out that up until now, the Trump administration has certainly met those announcement deadlines, and that is something that the Obama-Biden administration often failed to do. They were almost, it seemed like year in, year out, they were late with those announcements. So both parties have frustrated the biofuels industry by often over-promising and under-delivering. Now again, this is just one of many important issues in this campaign. A lot of other issues that will make a big difference in how people vote. So this is just one of several important issues. But it could. The biofuels issue could make a big difference in an election that is expected to be close. When you get an election as close as this one is now being predicted to be, one issue one way or another can sway several votes and can help determine the outcome of an election. So this is a key issue. And getting back to my movie analogy that I started off with where two people can see a movie and as they talk about it later you wonder if you you actually saw the same movie because you seem to see different things, hear different things, take away different things. As both of these candidates and both of these parties pledge their support for biofuels Many voters impacted by this decision are not only trying to decide, are they watching the same movie, but more importantly, whether or not they have seen it before. Is this a movie we've seen before replayed where promises are made, pledges are made to support the biofuels industry, and then the actions don't back up the words? I think that's the question that many people will be asking of both candidates and of both parties. And the answers that they feel they are getting will go a long ways perhaps in deciding their votes and deciding the outcome of the election. So again, it's just something to watch. One of the many layers of this election in a very important election that people will be watching, how will it impact rural America and how will rural America vote come November? Something to watch. All right, that wraps it up for today. Tomorrow, we're going to take a look at the impact of Hurricane Laura on the infrastructure and transportation for agriculture in that Gulf area. And we'll talk more about the weather and the overall ag economy. Hope you'll join us right here on AOA. Be safe, everyone.